Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Armin, would you like to pray for us this morning? Okay. You can do. You can try. Prayer time. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning to well thank you and praise you for abundant blessings that we enjoy at your hand each day. For your presence here on Dave as he tries to teach us your word and on us that we might absorb and, and comprehend it. And uh, well we just uh, praise you Lord for um, all your blessings and beauty. And we just pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Make sure this thing's on. Yep. Um, well, happy Mother's Day. Thank you. <laughs> and for those of you that do double duty, happy Mother's Day. <laughs> um, I had the opportunity to talk to my mom yesterday, which was great. Uh, she's turning 80 uh, this year. So that's always one of those milestones. So, I guess I should feel old that she's 80, but, you know, she's 80 years young. She's, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about my mom. This is another rabbit trail, sorry. We'll start out that way. Uh, on her 76th birthday, I called to wish her happy birthday. And uh, she was hiking uh, up a mountain with uh, my father. And we grew up hiking, and, and uh, I was a climber, and... Uh, have a cabin in Colorado that's about 11,000 foot level, and that's where we go in the summer. And uh, it was, it's something that the whole family got together and we did a, an A-frame raven, and so that's the, the family retreat. And uh, so I, I called my mom on her 76th birthday, and she's climbing a mountain. And uh, I hear my dad in the background saying, you'll get better reception if you stand closer to the edge of the cliff. <laughs> They say the nuts don't far, fall too far from the trees. My goodness. I thought we'd start this morning with Psalm 142. Uh, this was a psalm of David uh, when he was in the cave, which we read about last week, where he was in, in Getty. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't bring pictures this morning. Karen reminded me as I was walking out the door that I hadn't prepared them ahead of time. So uh, we'll use the pictures that are in God's Word. Uh, rather than the pictures from my camera this morning. But uh, who would like to read Psalm 142 for us? Anybody? Go for it. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before Him. Before Him I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who know my way. In the path where I walk, men have hidden a snare for me. Look to my right and see, no one is concerned for me. I have no refuge, no one cares for my life. I cry to you, O Lord, I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of their goodness. Amen. So, this is actually a prayer of David that's captured in a psalm. 
And uh, if you recall the story, he was in a cave in uh, an area of En Gedi, which is, he's on the run. And uh, let me go ahead and I'll highlight that area just to kind of refresh where we were last week. Um, So, uh, if you recall, um, David is down here in the wilderness, and there's a ridge right here. You can kind of see a lighter line here. That's the top of the ridge. And the reason it's a lighter line is because it was a historical trail, and people would walk along the ridge tops rather than in the valleys. Because it was, even though you would think, well, why would they go on the top of the, the ridge where it's going to be rougher and um, less of a trail than down in the valleys? Well, because... The, the critters, the, well, the lions and tigers and bears would hang out down in the, in the valleys. And usually um, the, the soil conditions were different there such that if, it isn't, if there isn't already an established path, it was harder to go in the valleys than on the ridgetops. So you actually see a little kind of white line here, which is the top of the ridge, because that was a historical route. And even today you can see it. Uh, David was on one side and his men and Saul was on the other side of this ridge, so they're less than a mile apart, and Saul is quickly uh, converging on David to get to this break point here um, so that he can trap David before he has a chance to get out from between these two valleys. And uh, what happens in there is that the Philistines come and attack uh, Saul's area up in uh, the Benjamin Plateau. So Saul takes his men and he leaves and he goes back and defends his home turf, and then he puts uh, uh, a guard there and then takes 3,000 of his best men to come after David. Well, when David uh, gets to this break point, Saul's been called off, so God delivers David. Uh, David heads from here to what they call the strongholds of Engedi. And Engedi is, uh, it's a... There's a natural, uh, a bunch of natural springs there where water just comes bubbling out of the rock. And so there's an actual kind of river or stream at the bottom of this, uh, this valley that it's very steep and rigid and there's all sorts of uh, um, caves and cliffs. And uh, this is an area where uh, mountain goats hang out. And if you go there today, you'll see a lot of mountain goats because it's the perfect country for a mountain goat that's very sure-footed that's looking for protection from its enemies. Um, this is where you find the rock badgers or the conies that it talks about in the Psalms. Uh, so the very hardy critters living here. And David's in here in a cave with his men, and he's at the back of the cave, so it's a fairly good-sized cave. And Saul, his enemy, who's got his 300 or 3,000 Marines with him, uh, is looking for David in here, and he takes time out to uh, relieve himself or uncover his feet as the King James would say. And in doing that, he, uh, he takes off his robe and he sets it aside and, uh, and then becomes very vulnerable. And David, in the midst of this, um, you hear this prayer to the Lord. So I mentioned uh, one of the distinctions between David and Saul is how they approach making decisions and uh, understanding God's will in their lives. Now, what do we remember about Saul? What, what does he rely upon when he goes to make decisions? 
friend and those around him, his advisor. Right. He, he looks advice. to human, human advisors, and uh, he looks to intelligence information that he can gather from the communities and from the spies that he sends out. Um, what does David rely upon when he's trying to understand God's counsel? Pardon? God himself. He goes to him. He prays. And that's what we read in the, the 142nd Psalm. We also know that he had a priest with him that had uh, the Urim and the Thummim, uh, which was a, a way of getting uh, God's divine guidance uh, back in that day. So you had the prophetic uh, word. They didn't have the scriptures as we have them today. Uh, they had the prophets that would declare God's uh, word to people. Uh, and then the, the prophets were recorded, like, for example, Samuel. And that's how we got the written word today uh, in, in various parts. But back then, they had to have different means of uh, deciding what God's will was. And the, the Urim and the Thummim were uh, this way of doing it. I have a modern-day uh, Urim and Thummim. And so you, you find these often at the store. You don't have to be a, a, a priest to get these today. But what it is, is, you know, if you want to know God's will, you just you roll out your dice. And this one says, gripe often. So, gripe often. <laughs> or you have a magic eight ball, you know. And that's, that's kind of the way we think about, well, gee, can you really discern God's will by rolling the dice? It says, gripe today. So, evidently, gripe is the theme today. So, uh, I like the one that says nap often. But, is, yes. Has anyone ever actually figured out precisely what Urim and Thummim really is? No. No. And uh, other than that we see the, the particular Hebrew phrase that describes this, it was a way of uh, determining God's will. And they sometimes it's translated casting lots. Um, sometimes they actually use the, the word itself. It was uh, prevalent from... This time, and the nations around also used a similar type of divination. The difference is, is who they were asking for, uh, inter, you know, a word from. They were asking for a word from Yahweh, uh, as opposed to, you know, Baal, the mountain god, or something. Did, did God at one time establish the earth, you know, casting yes. lots? Yeah, and you read about that, actually, uh, where it talks about the priestly attire and uh, well, the ephod. have always heard about that. Right, that's where it, it actually describes it in that, in that passage. I can look it up. Yes, they were actually in the, the ephod. So that, uh, that was one of the things when uh, uh, the, the priest fled uh, because they wiped out his family. Saul's had his family wiped out. Um, he grabbed the ephod, and within that was the Urim and the Thummim. And so we understand that what that's representing for us today is it's representing uh, seeking God's uh, will and word in our lives, and we do that through prayer. And you can see that David did that. I mean, he's in the cave, and he doesn't, he's not able to roll his dice, so he just talks directly to God, which was a very bold thing when you think about it, because back in those days, people didn't talk directly to God. He went to uh, the prophet or the priest, and here is the king talking directly to God. And, uh, and you know, this sounds like the way my week went. I cry aloud, 
with my voice to the Lord, make supplication with my voice to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. Oh, maybe that's why it's great today. Um, and I declare my trouble before him. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path and the, uh, the way where I walk. They have hidden a trap for me. And he goes on and he just pours out his heart. I cry out to you, O Lord, but you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Please give heed to my cry. For I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. So you can imagine, he's back in the cave, and he's got his men around him, but he's threatened. Saul is there to kill him. I mean, at that particular moment in time, Saul's not thinking specifically about killing David, but that's the whole reason he even is there, is because uh, the mission to wipe out David has brought him to En Gedi. And... Uh, and David is, is uh, pouring out his heart before the Lord. Well, what, what happens uh, as Saul uncovers his feet? Do you recall? So we're back in 1 Samuel chapter 24. Right, but before David cuts off a piece of his robe, what happens? So David's back there saying his, his prayer because he recognizes the oppression of uh, Saul coming against him. That's right. When Saul essentially uh, opens up his back to David, uh, it's David's perfect opportunity to take out Saul. Right? And uh, so Saul with his 3,000 men, which are outside the cave, obviously, uh, the men, uh, this is verse, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 4, it says, The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. So his men are encouraging him to go and kill Saul and to end this whole uh, problem that he has. But it says, Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. So David sneaks up behind him. There's his robe sitting there. And he cuts off a corner of his robe. What was that about? Do you recall? Pardon? Pardon? Well, if, if you wanted to uh, strengthen your hand, if what your goal was to, was to negotiate, and you wanted to bring to the negotiation table something very uh, persuasive and strong, then yeah, you could, he could have been cutting off the corner of his robe uh, just so that he can say, see, I was this close to you, I could have killed you. Uh, and ultimately he does say that, but was that his motive here? Anybody want to speculate? Well, told us last week. Yeah, I did. <laughs> what did I say last week? I can't remember. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> what your job was this week... But... What, what your job was this week was to remember it's Mother's Day today. <laughs> That's okay. You're forgiven. Yes? Um, isn't it sort of like, this is part of your kingdom? That's correct. It was a form of rebellion against the king. It was uh, taking something that wasn't rightfully his by force, a part of the kingdom. So it was rebellion. And, uh, and so even though David didn't kill him, he didn't give in to his men, um, he was, and he was probably very tempted to do that because we saw the cry of his heart. He's, you know, surrounded by one that's stronger than him. And here is the heart of the beast in front of him. 
He could take him out. And uh, so he's certainly tempted by that. And he cries out for the Lord to deliver him in that. And yet in a moment uh, of weakness, I would say, he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. And what we know that it wasn't uh, uh, something where he was looking for a negotiation piece because the very next verse says, and it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. David knew what he was doing and that he was um, acting in his time and in his will and in his wisdom, when I say his, I'm talking David's, um, to fix the problem at hand. And he wasn't trusting God. Yes? Well, we know that uh, the, the robe definitely played a very significant role in uh, um, how royalty was identified and what it signified, for example, when Jonathan took off his robe and gave it to David. Uh, now, I don't know if there was, uh, you know, like later in history, we have the crests of different uh, dynasties. And so, you know, you'd be identified by the colors or the I, I don't know that they had that at this point in time, um, but it was clearly a, 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 a robe that was distinct enough that, you know, if Saul's walking in public, people would recognize, oh, there's the king. Um, and so, yeah, there was, there was that. But I don't know that David, you know, snuck up and said, oh, hey, Saul's colors, let me cut them off. Uh, I think it was more just touching the robe in itself was a very bold thing to do. And then to actually take a piece of it to cut a part off is saying, I am in rebellion of you, I am not submissive to your authority as king, and I'm going to have my own kingdom of which you have no part. And so that's what we see happening here. And then David reflects on that, and he, real, he realizes something uh, about his character in that moment, something God reveals to him, probably answering his prayer, about deliverance that causes David to stop and say, whoa, what did I just do? Now before we proceed, and I know we moved through this last week and, and actually kind of went through it uh, fairly quickly, I'd like to ask you a question that was asked of me this, this week. Um, what are the attributes of a leader? That was a question that was asked of me. And I want to ask it of you. What are the attributes of a leader? He considers the needs of those he's leading. He considers needs of those that he's been given responsibility for. He shows confidence when he has none. <laughs> yep. Shows confidence when he has none. Decisive. Yeah. Decisive. Pardon? Trustworthy. Trustworthy? Absolutely. Humility. Pardon? Humility. Humility. Protector. Protector. Servant of all. Servant. We understand that, that those are behaviors, servant, protector, that come from the attributes of the heart. Right? And we heard some of those attributes really clearly, trustworthiness, um, 
I can't remember the other one, but the word that popped into mind when you said it was constancy or um, uh, decisiveness, I think it was, is what you said. So the idea of that uh, you, can, you can trust that the leader is going to take action, that they care for you, that they're going to take action. Um, and, I, and I started thinking, well, what are some of the leaders that I really... Uh, appreciated God putting before me such that I could follow them. What was it, what was it about them that made me want to follow? Well, well uh, the point I was thinking was what we're describing is a good leader. Mm-hmm. There are people who attract followers who right. are not necessarily good leaders. They mm-hmm. have certain characteristics that make people fall in behind them, but they lead them in the wrong direction. Well, and, and what we're talking yeah, about is somebody who leads in the right direction. Well, and what, what typically happens is if you don't have a, a good leader, because you're right, we're describing a good leader, one that we would love to follow, that we would lay our life down for, like Jonathan said he would do for David. Right? Um, what happens when you have a bad leader? Well, the reason they become a leader is because they display some of the characteristics or the attributes of... Uh, a good leader. Now, what they're missing is uh, an attribute that we would call integrity. You know what integrity is? Have you thought about that? Integrity is when the outside of a person, their presentation to the world, matches what's on the inside. Fidelity. There's no inconsistency. Fidelity uh, is an expression of that you know, multiplied out. So fidelity, and I think fidelity is very important. It's a singleness of mind that, you know, we talked about that care and concern for the people that God's put in your charge. Uh, Fidelity says, I'm going to stick with you to the end, right? That no matter what happens, I will be there. And I will give you my life in service to you. So you see that fidelity expressed in behaviors of service. But I think we look at we look at honesty, we look at integrity, we look at constancy, we look at um, trustworthiness. All of those things are uh, attributes of good leadership. And uh, they're actually, in order to be a good leader, you have to be a good follower. So as disciples of Christ, um, and we saw that Christ um, displayed these same kinds of attributes, and God displays these same kinds of attributes. Um, he has uh, righteousness and holiness and, uh, and mercy and kindness. And we look at all the attributes of God and we see, okay, those are the attributes of what a good leader looks like. And you actually see that starting to emerge from David. Even though he fails in what he, he's doing a lot of times, he fails, uh, he falls forward, if you will. He fails in a way that um, he is able to get back up and uh, not necessarily further his own ends, but hear the correction of God that caused him to fail um, and then take that to heart and change. He's teachable. So there's another attribute of a leader, being teachable. And so David has a teachable moment here. He cuts off the, the corner of Saul's uh, robe and his conscience bothers him. And then he says this to his men. He said, Far be it from me, because of the Lord, that I should do this thing to my Lord. 
and my king. The Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. What is it that David's declaring? This is verse 6. What is it that David's declaring there? What did he learn? He learned that God is sovereign and he is not. He learned that God is in control of this situation. That there isn't anything that caught God by surprise when David was in the cave and Saul came in and became vulnerable before him. That circumstance did not change God's plan in the least. And David... um, did not have to raise his hand up against Saul in order to take the kingdom because God had already anointed him and given him that kingship. Even though he wasn't the reigning king at that moment, he was the anointed king. Right? And he makes a declaration. He says, you know, I don't know why God did this. I don't know why he's got uh, an evil king that's only concerned about his own empire. And, uh, and his pomegranate eating underneath his, his tamarisk tree. But I believe that God has a plan and that what he's doing is for his purpose and that I have a part in that and I just need to wait on God. I need to wait on God's timing. So that's what he's declaring. He's declaring that he trusts the Lord, that God is sovereign. And then it says that he persuaded his men with these words. And did not allow them to rise up against Saul. Then Saul arose and left the cave and went on his way. So all of this is occurring while Saul is in their midst. Right? His men are saying, kill him, wipe him out, here's your opportunity. And David sneaks up, snip, in rebellion, then realizes what he's done. And then when his men question him on it, he declares, he says, you know, I just screwed up. I didn't wait on God. And he is what a leader is. He's persuasive. Does he insist? His men could have rebelled against David and gone and wiped out Saul because Saul's, he's after David, but guess what? They're in the way. So what do you think happens to the people in the way? They get wiped out too. So their life is threatened as much as David's life is threatened. They could have said, you know, you're, you're a nut, David. Um, I know we came this far with you, but we're going to take out Saul. This kind of opportunity does not come along every day. But David was persuasive, which is what a leader is. A leader um, has a heart that can see what a need fulfilled looks like, even though it may be years in the future. That's called vision. We read about in Proverbs how it says, Without a vision, without vision, the people will perish. You have to know what it is that God is trying to resolve uh, so that you can join in that effort. And that's what a leader does. He puts a vision out there for people. And then he is so effective in communicating that that the people are persuaded to join him in that mission to accomplish that goal. And that's what David does. He persuades his men with these words. And they did not rise up against Saul. 
And Saul left. And it says, Now afterward David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. So this was the humble. I think you said humble when we were looking at attributes. So David goes out and he recognizes, you know, everything happens in God's timing. I can trust God. And he makes himself vulnerable to Saul. Saul had been vulnerable to him through his ignorance. He would never have made himself vulnerable to David if he would have known what he was doing. David made himself vulnerable with full knowledge. The guy came out to kill him. And he goes out and he prostrates himself. So he, he gets down on his, his, uh, his face and reveals the back of his neck. It's a, it's a position of worship. It's how we approach God. We say, you're God and we're not. And you, uh, by your hand, give us life or death. You give us breath. I don't manufacture it. I'm not able to communicate it. But you, God, are the giver of life. And I place my whole life before you to do as you see, as best. And that takes trust. It takes confidence uh, in that leadership or that kingship of God to make yourself vulnerable that way. Of course, when we look at the big picture, it's not something that we have uh, a different option. Although we think we do, a lot of times we can bow down to ourselves or we can bow down to some other king, idols. And that's what the Bible talks about. It says, why do you, you know, bow down to something that's made out of wood? It's kind of stupid when you think about it. You know, you take half of it, you throw it in the fire, and you take the other half when you make an idol and you bow down to it. That's dumb. That's what it says in Isaiah. Um, and so we understand that this is a, a position of humility of David before Saul because he recognizes this is the Lord's plan. This is what God's doing. I'm going to be fully submissive to it. Very bold and brave thing. Another attribute of uh, an effective and good leader is one that is willing to take risks to accomplish the vision, the mission at hand, which David sees God's people delivered. And he knows that that may be many years in the future, and he may not actually be the one that accomplishes that. In fact, he isn't. But he sets up a type uh, of God's anointed that would die for his people and would humble himself to God's plan, even to the point of death, maybe death on a cross, in order to accomplish the final mission that God has set about to do, to redeem humanity. And David has that vision and is willing to submit even to this evil king in order to, for God's uh, plan to go forward. And Saul says to him, looking at verse 9, says, why do you listen to the words, or David said to Saul, excuse me, why do you listen to the words of men saying, behold, David seeks to harm you. Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. And some uh, said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Or I won't stretch out my hand against you, the king, because you're the Lord's, Lord's anointed. So, you know, this says later on that Saul didn't know that this was David speaking. Well, uh, 
yes and no. Uh, you certainly see Saul then say, is that you, David? Um, what are you doing here? Right? But at the same time, we know that, that Saul was in the cave and David, after you know, he stealthily, it says, he comes up with stealth to snip off the corner of the garment. So he was sneaking, he was a sneaker, when he uh, came up and cut off the corner of the, the garment. But when afterwards he went back to his men and after he'd had this, this uh, uh, lesson from God, which occurred in an instant, how does God speak to us? Well, this is one of the ways he speaks to us. He goes back and he has this conversation with his men. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a cave, but you, you can try and talk really softly, and that carries. Yeah. Right? So, I am of the opinion that what you see here uh, is that um, Saul was aware, uh, became aware that he was vulnerable in the cave. And, uh, and he didn't sit there and linger. He got out of harm's way because he could probably hear some of that conversation going on. And, uh, and what David comes out, uh, he says to him, he says, Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. So there's some awareness on Saul's part that he, was, he walked into a trap. And, uh, and David's saying, But... I won't stretch out my hand against you because that would be against God's will. Um, and yet at the same time, you see Saul kind of plays, plays the cards. You know, it's like, is that you, David? Uh, are you my, my son, the one that I love? That's what he's going to say. He says, now, and, and David, continue on verse 11, he says, Now my father see, indeed, the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. No one perceived that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands. And I have not sinned against you, though you were uh, lying in wait for my life to take it. So at this point, David's actually returning the, the corner of his robe. He says, see, here you go. I did this, but God told me it was wrong. <clears throat> So here I'm, I'm prostrating myself before you um, because I don't mean you any harm. This is what the God has taught me is that I am to, to protect you as well as God's other people. And here you go. I was, in, I was wrong, um, but now there is no rebellion in me. And, I, and he gives him that back. Um, and he says then, he says, uh, may the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. So what's he saying there? That's right. He's saying, you know, I know in my heart that I have no evil towards you, and that I trust God in his plan of which you're the king. And I will bow down to you as king. Even though I don't understand it. Right? I trust God and I'm going to let him judge. Because he's the one that can actually judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Right? 
and uh, and he says God may avenge this evil that's being done against me, but I won't. It's not my place. Think about this. Now, is this a guy that you want to follow? I mean, this is one of the boldest speeches that you'll find. Uh, and the next one's going to come from a woman. Well, this is complete Pardon? This complete supplication to the Lord. Exactly. Yep. This is, this is the picture uh, in the Old Testament that what we see in the New Testament in First Peter, where it talks about submission. And, uh, of course, we understand uh, Christ being fully submitted to the Father and uh, fully devoted to us, having that fidelity um, towards us. So we read on and says, uh, As the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. So he's now uh, citing popular literature of the day, saying, you know, even the, the uh, philosophers know that your actions follow the intentions of your heart. And if there's evil in your heart, you'll have evil actions. And if there's not evil actions, there's an indication that there's not evil in the heart. And so he's actually learning what God's teaching him about being a man after God's heart. Right? Um, wickedness comes forth wickedness but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? Now he's using a little bit of irony. So, you know, David's not, not uh, a pushover, even though he's a very humble man. Uh, you remember, he took out Goliath. And uh, he didn't do that in his own strength, but nonetheless, he was willing to go forth. And that takes uh, a certain character of heart. And yet he says, who are you coming out against? Uh, a dead dog, a single flea? The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me. And may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And what, what response can you have to a great, uh, compelling speech like that. Probably Saul, at that point, says, you know, I want to follow you too. You seem to be a pretty good leader. In fact, he kind of says that. He says to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me, while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, and that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward, reward you with good and return to what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. That's a pretty bold statement from Saul, who is scared spitless of David becoming king. And then he says, So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. David swore to Saul, and Saul went to his home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. So they stayed in Engedi. Now, what is it that Saul's asking for? Don't wipe out all my kids. 
Yeah. yeah. Right. Now, do you think Saul expects that he's lost the kingship that day? Pardon? Yeah. There was a yes and there was a no. In the same household, this is scary. <laughs> what do you think? David has prostrated himself uh, before him. Saul's marines are still up in the hill. They're, uh, they're not right there by his side. David is in his presence. And David's saying, you know, I'm not here to harm you and let God judge the intentions of my heart, both yours and mine. And uh, Saul's thinking, now, my son Jonathan already made a covenant with this guy. So the future king is not going to be from my household because even if Jonathan succeeds me, he's going to be subservient to David because he said he was going to be, right? And Saul knows something about his son. And he knows that his son is not going to reign after him. So I think you're right. He sees the handwriting on the wall and uh, recognizes that he's going to maybe, maybe to be able to play out his kingship and build his kingdom uh, in his day, but it's going to go no further than that. And it was very common for uh, people to wipe out the whole family of uh, the previous king when there was a, a change in dynasty. And so Saul's being a shrewd politician. He's saying, make me a promise that when you become king, because I can see the handwriting on the wall, John's not going to do it. Um, and everybody's rallying behind you. So when that day happens, just don't wipe out my family. Yeah. I'm going to play my final card. Didn't Samuel say that God had taken the kingdom? He said to Saul. Yeah, he, he did say that. And that's when then Samuel went and found uh, David uh, through Jesse's family and was anointed him king. So Saul had heard this, right, from Samuel. Um, He'd heard it from his son. He'd heard it from the people. You know, Saul is slain as thousands and David is tens of thousands. Um, he heard it from his daughter, Michal. And uh, so it's like, yeah, okay, I'm going to play this card. And I'm going to make sure that whenever that transition occurs, at least you don't come in and wipe out my whole family. I'll make a couple of points. First of all, when he said all of this about David, I think sometimes God works through people to say things and they go, did I just say that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and you actually find Saul doing that a lot. And number two, if he thought his kingdom was ending that day, it would have, I mean, he right. would have given the kingdom to David. Right. So uh, he was just being shrewd and, right. uh, yeah, and just yeah. waiting until, until the time that David actually did take over. Right. He didn't take off his robe and give it no. to David, which would have been the transition. Yes. He did not do that. And that's uh, a you know, good observation. He, he knows he's going away, which he does. He says, uh, Saul went to his home, but David and his men 
got to hang out in the, the desert with the conies, right? Uh, which would you choose? Tamarisk tree, pomegranates, rock, hard life. Anyway. So um, I, I have kind of a bigger picture question, I guess. I, I kind of like what David's heart is here in the verses where he says, you know, let the Lord judge between me and you. But the Lord can avenge me, but I won't do it. Right. I won't do it myself. I won't try to pull you myself because you're the Lord's anointed. Even though right. I've been anointed king, I know that you are anointed king, and I haven't been given that yet. So he's letting the Lord do it. He's not going to jump in and do it himself. Correct. Okay, so I'm trying to compare that. I'm trying to bring it home for us, you know, for me. <laughs> okay, so you started by saying, well, you know, sometimes... We haven't done, you know, and, 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 but I don't think you're saying we just roll the dice to ask what God's will is. Nope. Because what David is doing here, he knows he's not going to, he, he's protecting himself, he's running and hiding. Right. But he's not going to be offensive and kill the king. Right. Even though he has that So there's a principle there. He's not asking his priests with him. Hey, can we roll the dice on this one? Right. No, he knows he's not going to do that. All right, so right. bring that home for us now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because I think there's a lot of principles in the word that we are not going to do, you know, this, whatever it is. Right. You know, whether it's something big like, you know, the time for me to leave my spouse or whatever. I mean, right. No, we don't even ask that, right? So, what things then does it make sense for us to be asking direction, and what things should we already know from the from the word of God? You know? Right. Well, um, this is actually very keen to my struggle in daily life, trying to understand what the will of God is in all of these gray situations where, man, it would be so much better if I could just go to the table on page uh, <laughs> and, and pull out the answer. And yet it doesn't work like that. And what you see actually occurring here, and I'll, and I'll get to you here in a second, Arthur, is you see uh, the training of David's heart. So we know that God looked throughout history, right? Before David was born, every day was numbered. We read that in Psalm 139, right? He declares, he says, you know, I know that you knew me um, before I was in my mother's womb. And that every moment of my life is ordered by you. And that you have ordained that my destiny, what you've called me to do. Now, I have a responsibility to trust you in that and to act according to your will. Well, how do you do that? That's the question. How do I act according to his will? And that's what you see is this formation of David's heart and character such that he is able to act in God's will without having to throw the dice. That when he's confronted with a situation, a guy throwing dirt clods at him from a hill and cursing him as his son has usurped his authority and taken his throne and defiled his family by sleeping with his wives, and he is now going into exile, right? And the guy's sitting there throwing stones at him and hurling insults, and uh, 
his, his guard, this, we're going to read about this in 2 Samuel, um, his guard says, hey, should I go and chop off his head? And David says, no, trust the Lord. Right? David learned, he didn't have to throw the dice at that moment. He knew that that was not his job. That was not God's will for his life. And what you're seeing here is David is learning what God's will for his life is. It isn't by rebellion and force to take uh, and establish the kingdom, even though he might think that he has a good reason. Well, I want to protect God's people, so therefore I'm going to attack these people, and, you know, or I'm going to take this guy out. It's not what he does. He says, okay, Lord, how would you preserve life in this situation? And, and I just gave you the key that I've come to discover. One of the things that you see about God revealed throughout the Bible is that um, he always chooses life. From the very beginning, when he created humanity, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. And we understand that both in a physical, phenomenal sense, but we also understand that the very life that is eternal in God was placed within his creation. That's a remarkable thing. And how that occurred, we don't understand, because he's God and we're not. And he even tells us that. But nonetheless, you see a, a conscious choice on God's part throughout history to bring life. And there are times when the judgment to bring life and to preserve life seems really hard. Let's wipe out the Amalekites. Right? How is that going to bring life? And this is where you get into discussions from people that study God's word throughout history uh, of like the just war theory and things like that. Is there ever a just uh, war where you would act in aggression in order to save life? Right? And you see that both in uh, effective, uh, apparently God-ordained uh, historical circumstances and ineffective for example, people that would kill the abortion doctor, right? Thinking, well, I'm going to save, you know, there are 40 million uh, abortions plus. I mean, it's, I'm sure the bar nexus of that today. Um, and so I'll take out the perpetrators of this crime, right? Is that what God has called us to do? No, he's called us to reveal his heart to the world. That's what an ambassador does. And that we are choosing life as God chooses life. And trusting that he may avenge, but I'm not going to avenge. That's God's job. My job is to share life. And so every day, I'm given uh, a responsibility and an opportunity to choose life. And uh, for me, sometimes that's a real struggle, right? Because I'm selfish, and I want to do what I want to do, and I want to have my own kingdom, right? Because the... the that sin is still within me. It hasn't been purged yet in the sense of uh, me being fully formed in the image of Christ. But, like David, God's working on me. And, that's, and, and what I want to make sure is, is that I'm teachable. And that um, I'm compassionate. That I choose life and kindness and goodness. When... We have a tradition in my family, and it started really young. My son has a learning disability, and you've met him, my son Michael. 
uh, they call it dyslexia. In a way, it's just a title that they put on a, a whole class of disorder uh, because they don't know what else to call it, but it seems to be uh, somewhat recognizable. And, of course, he had the classic letter reversal and all that kind of stuff you normally think, think about dyslexia. To me, that just seemed normal. You know, you read upside down and backwards. So, but, uh, yeah, exactly. You know, but anyway, he had a challenge uh, with the whole language method of reading that was being taught in the school. And so he was put into special education, and, and uh, at a very early age, we intervened, and we got him into a, uh, a special school for dyslexic children that was run by a Christian lady who used a, um, a multiphasic approach, a kinesthetic, um, uh, audible, visual approach to learning. And rather than using uh, whole language, where you basically memorize large sections and then you learn how to recognize those sections, taught in uh, uh, attack skills or how to break things down. Well, it significantly influenced the way that he became a learner. He became a big picture learner and, and all of those things. Um, he's gone through college now, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's uh, gone through college, yep, and, and uh, the first year of seminary. And uh, so a remarkable change from a guy who couldn't read in the 10th grade to study in Greek and Hebrew, right? And it was because of the approach that that was taken with my son Michael. Well, when I would take him every morning, now I had no vision as to where this was going, what, my, what was going to happen with my kid who's five years old, six years old. So I'd take him to this dyslexic school, uh, Mount Olive School for Dyslexic Children, every morning, and I'd give him a, a word for the day as we leave. Let's do good. And then after a while, got added on, be brave. Mm -hmm. And then got added on, have fun. Mm -hmm. And then got added on, be kind. And what I was doing is I was looking at the attributes of a leader like David, and I was saying, what is it that I want to communicate to my kids um, that will help form their hearts so that they'll choose life when the moment comes and you have that long to make a decision? Right? Because the decision's already pre-made. I don't know about you guys, but... When a major decision in life comes, it usually doesn't come with a waiting period that you can do a pros and a cons list and do a full analysis. No, you've got to choose. What are you going to choose today? That's what, that's what uh, Joshua said. As for me and my household, we're going to choose the Lord. But you guys need to choose, and you're going to do it today. This is the, this is the moment of decision. And uh, so do good, be brave, have fun, be kind became the... Uh, this, the greeting that we would give to uh, each other as we would part. Greeting as you part. But, uh, I mean, that's what we would say. And then, of course, we had to embellish that over the years. We had to explain what kindness was. So it was do good, be brave, have fun, be kind, to lower life forms, small animals, Ferengis, Borg. <laughs> and the, the point of that was... Uh, and then finally, as they got older, it was adding on boys and girls because, you know, a guy, you got to be kind to girls. And, uh, and a happy Mother's Day, by the way. Uh, so that's what David's learning. He's learning to do good, be brave, to have fun, and to be kind. And to do that in a way that shares the vision of what God is doing in the world such that people want to join that mission. And he's choosing life. Now, I've said that, 
and taken almost the whole time. Um, we are through chapter 24. I would like to very quickly read a little bit about what David comes up against next, because he now has his next teaching moment. You'd think, well, gee, he just gave this great speech. He must be done. Now, God's not done yet. So I'm just going to read through real quick, and then I'm going to leave you hanging. So then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him, and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings. And he was uh, Calebite, descendant of uh, Caleb. Uh, that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing a sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all uh, that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David, David's young men came and spoke to Nabal according to all these words David uh, in David's name, then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servant and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat? that I have slaughtered for my, for my shearers and give it to men whose origin I do not know. He's dissing his family. Um, he says, so David's young men retraced their way and went back, and they came and told him according to all these words. David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. So David takes out his marines. He says, I'm going to teach this guy a lesson. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. Uh, they were a wall to us by night and by day. All the time we were with them, tending the sheep. So they were doing their job, providing, protecting, serving. Uh, it says, Now therefore, know and consider... What you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is uh, such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. That's a pretty bold statement. Then Abigail hurried back, uh, hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. And it came about as, he, as she was riding on her donkey and coming down to the hidden part of the mountain that, behold, David and his men were coming down toward her. So she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned to me evil for good. Key phrase. May God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the blame. 
and please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is the name, and folly is within him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. I'm going to stop there, because I don't want to read the whole account. But what you see is you see David continuing to act rationally, just like he rebelled and cut off the corner of Saul's garment. Now he says, strap on your swords, men! We're going to go teach these guys a lesson. That's the very, very thing he's not supposed to do, right? And yet you still see David doing these stupid things. And a woman comes to him, meets the needs that they have, and you look at the food that she's prepared, and it's like, well, that'll be persuasive. These guys are hanging out in the hills, and she's bringing them cakes of raisins. That, that will really help. It will. And, uh, and she's going to make a speech that is similar to David's speech that he just made in the presence of Saul. And David is going to be changed further. What you're seeing is the formation of the heart of the king to consistently, with constancy, display the character of God to God's people. And that takes work, and it takes correction. God corrects those he loves. You need to remember that. So when you find yourself in correction, think, okay, Lord, what's the lesson? Help me get it. David still needs to learn lessons, and that's what we're going to see next. What I was going to mention, and you touched on, is the whole thing falls back on that one statement by God that vengeance is his. Yes. And we need to think of that every time we get angry with somebody. You know, there's so many ways that that affects our life that we tend to ignore as human beings. And that's what he's working on and working at the same time. And that we need to look at what our job is and what God's job is. And that's not part of our job. Gentleness and respect. Yep. And we want to make sure we do our job well. Which is, today, guys, love your wives. Honor them as mothers. Um, Lord, we just thank you for this time together that we could study your word. Uh, We thank you for uh, helping us to wrestle with the issues uh, as we see the formation of David's character and apply those to our lives, that it's not just a story, Lord, that you've preserved for us to entertain us, but rather um, you've preserved this to transform us. And Lord, we would ask that the, the, uh, the elements of uh, those principles that we're wrestling with right now be so clear to us that they are effective in transforming us, that your Holy Spirit can actually uh, move within our heart to change us and that we can be both uh, changed and agents of change. Lord, we thank you for this. We uh, ask that you would bless our time this morning, that you would honor uh, the mothers and uh, women among us, as this is a day to celebrate um, that which uh, they've done faithfully, uh, that you've assigned to them. Lord, ask that uh, you would protect us, that you would provide for us, and uh, we thank you for your service, your loving kindness towards us. Lord, we ask that you be with Bob this morning as he uh, presents from Ecclesiastes, which can be really hard sometimes, um, but yet there's a message of joy for us. Help us to find that. Lord Jesus, we pray all this in your name. Amen.